We worship in, in many ways. Singing and, and song is, is one, but we also worship by proclaiming the, the truths of the scriptures together. So I would love if you would stand with me as we proclaim the truths of the scripture from Psalm 89. It says this. I'd love for you to read with me out loud. Lord, God of hosts, who is strong like you, Lord? Your faithfulness surrounds you. You rule the raging sea. When its waves surge, you still them. Let's continue to worship in song together. Who am I that the highest king would welcome? There we go. I was lost, but he brought me Oh, his love for Oh, his love for Who the sun Who the sun sets free Oh, it's free indeed I'm a child of God Yes, I am in my father's house, in my father's house. There's a place for me. I'm a child of God. Yes, I am. Free last. Free last, he has ransomed me. His grace runs While I was a slave to sin, Jesus died for me. Yes, he died for me. Who the sun sets free. Oh, it's free indeed. I'm a child of God, yes I am, in my Father's house, there's a place for me, I'm a child of God, yes I am, and I am chosen, not forsaken. I am who you say I am. You are for me, not against me. Oh, I am who you say I am. Oh, I am chosen, not forsaken. Oh, I am who you say I am. You are for me, not against me, oh, I am who you say I am, oh, I am who you say I am, oh, I am who you say I am, who the sun says free, oh, it's free indeed, I'm a child. Yes, I am in my Father's house. There's a place for me. I'm a child of God. Yes, I am in my Father's house. There's a place for me. I'm a child of God. Yes, I am. I am chosen. And I am chosen, not
Proclaim freedom in this room this morning. I proclaim freedom in this room this morning. God, I ask that any words that have been spoken, any things that have been placed over people that are not of you, God, that those things begin to just fall off in the name of Jesus. Yahweh, we call on your name this morning. Lead us into the freedom that only comes through your Son, Jesus Christ. We proclaim freedom this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. Feel free to go ahead and take a seat. We'll be diving into... Uh Exodus chapter 3 and our, our third week of our vision series here in just a moment. Uh, before that, just a couple announcements. First, uh, if you're new with us, we're having a welcome lunch today. We do this every six weeks or so. And uh, like I said, if you're new, if you have questions, if you want to meet the leadership of the church from the elders, myself, other staff members, um, or if you have specific questions about our vision, who we are and what we do, the, the Welcome Lunch is the perfect place to, to come and hopefully get your uh, questions answered and be fed really well because Michael Holliver caters it and it's always delicious. So that will be right after uh, this gathering in what we call the studio, which is the room in the back where the glass garage door is. We'd love to, to have you join us or even if you've been here a little while. Um, but you've not yet got involved, then you want to. It's a perfect way to get involved. So we'd love to have you join us right after we're done with uh, this gathering. Today we'll meet in the studio. With that said, uh, some of you were with us two weeks ago when we actually celebrated the three-year birthday of the church. It's been really fun to consider um, that we are a, a new church, only three years old, and God is taking us on this journey, and we are joining him in his mission of restoring broken stories to beautiful, and I'm really excited about where God is, is taking us and the opportunity we have to follow him uh, together. And two weeks ago, I introduced you to our prospective elders that I'm excited to uh, transition today from prospective elders to uh, appointed elders. And so if you've been with us, we've had what we've called a management team for three years, six men, one's in Prescott, uh, three in Phoenix, one in Huntington Beach, and one in Portland, Oregon, that have had the oversight and authority over the church. But today, we get to make this shift to having local elders, which is going to be a, a great gift and blessing uh, from God to us as the church. Acts uh, 14.23 says this. I want to read it to you. Acts basically tells the story of the church starting after Jesus' life, death, and, and resurrection. And we read this in Acts 14.23. As all these churches are being planted around the world. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. And so biblically speaking, one of the first things that each of these different missionaries, including Paul, did was to establish elders in a local church. And so this is a gift to us. As I mentioned two weeks ago, I've had the... the opportunity now over seven months to kind of have this uh, relationship and, and building of this team. We've read a few different books together. We've kind of went through each little aspect of our statement of faith that you can find online and discussed it and asked different questions and ran through scenarios and prayed together, worked together, had you in mind together. Um, and so I'm really excited today to, to bring these men before you. I'm going to call them up each one by one. That way you can kind of begin to put a, a face to the name. And I encourage you after our gathering over the next uh, week and months and years to, to get to know them because they're great men that are joining Jesus as they follow him in the everyday stuff of life. So first I want to invite Ben Baker up and Toby Ebarb, Aaron Lambert, Ty Myers, and Bill Eaton. 
as I invite them up, I, I truly mean it when I say it's, it's a privilege and an honor. They've, they've been a gift to me. And so to get to, to stand with them symbolically, but more so to walk with them as we, we journey through life, they have genuinely and sincerely been a gift to me. And they genuinely and sincerely will be a gift to you. I want to read an exhortation to them as elders that comes from 1 Peter. It says this. So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. In Acts 20, there's a, another exhortation specifically given to the elders. We read this. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. That's really key. The Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. There's beauty in that, that the Holy Spirit has brought us here today with these men and I want you to know that, that their role, what they're committed to do is to pray for you, to seek your best interests, to ensure that we as a body are sticking to the scriptures and joining Jesus and his mission, not trying to do something on our own. Uh, they didn't come up with some, some great strategy and ideas and invite Jesus to join them on that. We are following Jesus together, and that's the way it's meant to be, the only way it's meant to be. Once again, I'm just thankful to, to have them with us. I'm excited for you to get to know them and for the next phase, the next season of the journey that Jesus has us on together. And so would you stand with me? I'd love for us all to pray together with the church being a people who and, and not a place where as we embark on the next phase of this journey with these men in, in this leadership position. Father, we thank you for this day. I thank you for each and every person in this room made uniquely, loved holistically by you. I thank you specifically for these elders, God, this team, working together to seek unity, to proclaim your name, to present to this church and this city the God that you are, overwhelming us with your love and faithfulness and truth, with your grace and compassion and forgiveness. God, lead us as we practice your way of life. Help us to be an effective preview of your coming reign, Jesus. We look to you in everything. We depend on you holistically. We love you and thank you that we've been loved by you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thank you, guys. Once again, I'd encourage you to, to find them and get to know them uh, after the gatherings. That's what they're, they're here for. Okay, with that said, we're gonna dive into uh, this morning's sermon. And I shared with the last uh, service, I had this goal, I have funny goals. When I was in Portland in January, and I'm like, hey, when I get back, I'm going to do only 25-minute sermons. Hasn't happened yet. It will, but not yet. Today's going to be a little bit longer, um, so I'm just going to let you know that up front. I hope it's worth it, and I believe it will be, but you can tell me at the end if not, and I'll try something different next week. Um, so we're going to start in Exodus chapter 3. As we started this vision series, uh, two weeks ago we started with this idea of joining Jesus. We can't start anywhere else. Again, it's not something where we go, hey, Jesus, I got some great ideas and strategy. You should see the modern world and globalization. It's great. We really know how to spread your name in the world now. So come on, follow me. We got some good stuff. Like, we don't do that. Jesus already has a perfect plan and we are joining him in his mission of restoring broken stories to beautiful, and we can never get that out of order or else all goes wrong. That's what we talked about in week one. In week two, we read the Great Commission, the last words that Jesus gives before his ascension. And so they're really important because it's the last time he's going to speak in to his disciples, command them, instruct them in this way. And he says this, he says, I'm going to be king. All authority in heaven and on earth have been given to me, and one day I'll reign fully here on the earth, and all of life will be perfect as it was meant to be. That's going to happen. He says, because of that, therefore, go, not as in leave, but in the everyday stuff of your life, make disciples. And so we talked about how there's that word, this discipleship word. If you've been around church, maybe served in it, or parachurch ministries, you hear this discipleship word a lot. And we often don't actually define it, but Jesus defines it for us here. He says, go, therefore, 
in the everyday stuff of life and make disciples, and then he defines it in the first part of a disciple or a follower, an apprentice of Jesus is this, someone who's been baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. And so, yes, that does mean dunking people in, in some kind of galvanized tub or whatever it is based on the church you go to in the name of the Father, Son, and Spirit, symbolizing the, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. Yes, but it's actually way deeper and richer and more important than that. It's actually saying, what Jesus is saying is a disciple is someone who has been overwhelmed by Father, Son, and Spirit. Who's been covered by, blanketed in, who's drowning in the love of Father, Son, and Spirit. All three in one as the triune God. It's somebody who knows experientially and in information who God is. That There's no form of discipleship unless we're a disciple of God who is Father, Son, and Spirit. And so once we've been presented with, baptized in the name of Father, Son, and Spirit, then Jesus continues and says, therefore, baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and Spirit, and teach them to obey or observe all that I've commanded you. Not for the sake of following rules. Notice the sequence. It's not, hey, if you follow the rule, follow the rules, then God will love you. It's no, we experience and are overwhelmed, baptized in the love of Father, Son, and Spirit. We know that he is good and faithful, compassionate and gracious and just. And so we say his way of life makes sense. So we're going to practice the way of Jesus. And then we're not called to save the world. But by the way we practice, being human the way we're made to be, following the way of Jesus, because we've been presented with God in a way that overwhelms us, Father, Son, and Spirit, will be in a preview, like a movie trailer. That Jesus is coming again, and when he does, it will be perfect. There will be no more tears and pain and confusion, and all will be as it was meant to be. And our job is to be a preview of that. Next week, we'll talk about the practice piece. The following week, we'll talk about the preview part. Today, we're only going to talk about this being presented with God in a way that overwhelms us with Father, Son, and Spirit. As we dive into that discussion, I want you to just take a minute and think about who God is. I'm going to shut up and be silent for a second and just go like, who is God to you? When you think about God, what do you feel? What have you experienced? Do you have uh, emotions or fears or anxiety or is there a warmth and a peace? Like what comes to mind when you think about who God is? Take like just 30 seconds right now and just think about God. guessing in this room there's all kinds of different ideas about who God is. Um, some accurate, some not. Some that have been shaped by our earthly fathers. Some with brokenness. Some that are just really good. But there's probably a variety. And it's really interesting as we, we look at the scriptures from beginning to end, we actually see that God reveals himself to us. He presents who he is as Father, Son, and Spirit slowly and methodically and over time, not all at once, because he is God and we are not and we wouldn't be able to handle it. And so this progression of God presenting himself starts actually with a man named Abraham. And God comes to Abraham and says, hey, you're, you're going to grow into a mighty nation and the world's going to be saved by you. And Abraham's like, who are you? And God says, I am El Shaddai, or God Almighty. That's what this, this means in the Hebrew. El actually is this name that means king of the gods. In the, the Canaanite world that Abraham was used to and was a part of, that there were all kinds of different gods, and people didn't worship just one god. They, they worshiped a, a pantheon of different gods. But El was to be the king of the gods, maybe even temporary king of the gods. And so when our God says to Abraham, I am El Shaddai, he's giving himself a title, I am God Almighty, I am like El, I am the king of all the gods, and I am almighty above all else. In his book, God has a name, which I highly recommend. I'm kind of part of half of my sermons like tracing one chapter of this book this morning. Uh, John Mark Comer says this that I think is, is really helpful. He says this, the creator calls himself El Shaddai, which is a way of saying I'm like El, but I'm so much more. He'll, he'll also refer to himself as El Elyon, which means God most high, again, above all other gods, just a title, or El Olam, God everlasting, 
meaning there will be no other L. Only this God has the title of everlasting and above all. But notice, these are just titles. He doesn't have a name. Abraham doesn't know much about him other than he says, follow me, I'll take care of you. And he just has a title. It's not a very intimate, necessarily, relationship at this point. When Abraham dies, Abraham's son Isaac will refer to this God in the realm of all these other gods as the God of my dad, the God of Abraham. When Isaac dies, Jacob, his son, will refer to this God as the God of Abraham and Isaac, my dad and my, my granddad. When Jacob dies, the rest of the family will refer to this God as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so throughout the scriptures, Old and New Testament, you will read the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But notice, God still only has a title. They don't know this God very well at this point. And that's where we're at at the beginning of this progression what we're going to fast forward from Genesis, the first book of the Bible, now to Exodus, the second. And we're going to read in Exodus chapter 3, beginning with verse 7. If you have a Bible, feel free to, to turn there. Exodus 3, verse 7, we read this. Then the Lord said to Moses, who's a Hebrew, a descendant of Abraham, who actually grew up in the Egyptian palace. I have observed the misery of my people in Egypt and have heard them crying out because of their oppressors, and I know about their sufferings. I have come down to rescue them from the power of the Egyptians and to bring them from that land to a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey, the territory of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. The Israelites' cry for help has come to me, and I have also seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them get a, a pretty cool window into who God is. He presents himself and he says this. Here's my title. I am El Shaddai, El Olam, El Elyon, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But then he kind of clues us into how he works. He goes, I hear, I listen, and I hear the cries of my people. They don't escape me. I know what's going on. He goes, I look out and I see the people being oppressed and abused and this racism and this slavery, and it's not okay. And so I'm going to do something about it. He's slowly but surely beginning to reveal the character of the God behind this title that started with Abraham, El Shaddai. We continue now to, to verse 10. God says to Moses, therefore, go. Kind of sounds familiar to Jesus' words. Therefore, go. I am sending you. Interesting. He's near this mountain. There's actually this whole burning bush scene. And God's like, hey, I'm going to be in a bush so you know where to look and listen. Because otherwise you're not going to know where I am or what's going on. And you'll probably be freaked out in the middle of the desert. So they're talking here next to this mountain. Notice this. Moses didn't climb to the top of the mountain and go, hey, God, I don't know if you can hear me. I'm as high as I, as high as I can get. Listen up. I've got a great idea. I don't know if you know this, God, but I was actually raised in the Egyptian palace. So I know a lot about political power and how things work. And I think I can save your people. But I'll probably need you to help me a little bit. So if you could come on down just for part of the time, I need you to do some miracles and things. And then you can join me. Follow me. We'll work this whole thing out. That's not what happens. Therefore, go. I am sending you. He joins Jesus. He joins God in his mission of redemption and salvation. I am sending you to Pharaoh so that you may lead my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. Then Moses asks a very important question that none of us should ever stop asking. But Moses asked God, who am I? Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and that I should bring the Israelites out of Egypt? God responds in verse 12 and he says, great point, Moses. You're not very much. But that's not the point. I am with you. And that is all that matters. I am with you. That is all that matters. You cannot do this. You're right. But I am with you. He answered, I will certainly be with you. And this will be the sign to you that I have sent you. When you bring the people out of Egypt, you will all worship God at this mountain. Then God asked Moses, or excuse me, then Moses asked God. Now this is a, a very important clue into the relationship between God and his people at this point. Moses asked God, if I go to the Israelites and say to them, here's a title, the God of your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name, what should I tell them? What, what does that clue us into? They don't even know his name. 
They don't know this God very well. At this point, they're not really close with this God. Hey, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob has, has sent me. They're like, great. What's his name? Moses is like, I don't know. But he says, follow me. I don't know about that. I don't think the Egyptians will like it. What's his name? What should I tell them? There's this progression. We pick up in verse 14. God replied to Moses, I am who I am. It's powerful. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. I place myself in Moses' sandals, shoes, whatever. Actually, God told him to take his sandals off at this point. And he's in the middle of the desert next to a mountain talking to a bush that's on fire. And I picture him thinking through this idea of walking back to Egypt where he's not been in a long time to see his stepbrothers and sisters and his, his dad who's Pharaoh, or his dad is not Pharaoh, but his adopted grandfather, and go like, hey, I was just in the desert talking to a burning bush, and uh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, he is who he is, <laughs> told me to uh, tell you to follow. That doesn't seem that helpful. I kind of picture Moses being like, Hey, God, this sounds good. The burning bush is cool. I like it. But this isn't really helpful. I don't know what you mean. He goes, well, let me clarify. Say this to the Israelites. Yahweh, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. This is how I am to be remembered in every generation. In 1 John in the, the New Testament, John, empowered by the Holy Spirit, writes this. God is love. God is love. That can be kind of confusing. What does that mean? We connect that to Exodus 3 where God says, I am who I am. God is love. I am who I am. God is love. And he says, I am who I am. I am love. I am life. I am the source of all that is good and faithful and true and right and noble and everything that is healthy in this world. I am who I am. There's a, there's a small picture and taste of what God means here. But you're probably still confused, as Moses was at this point. Because he kind of gives two names, it seems like. I am who I am. That's a weird name, but okay. And he says, tell them, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, my name is Yahweh, has sent you. So I am who I am. And Yahweh, what, what does this mean? Well, I am who I am in Hebrew looks like this. Can we go to the one right before this, Jeff? There we go. It's Aye, Asher, Aye. Aye, Asher, Aye. I am Aye, Asher, who I am, Aye. Now, does that not sound very similar to Yahweh? Aye and Yahweh. It's the same root word. The only difference is that Aye, Asher, Aye, I am who I am is the first person. God is saying, I am who I am. Yahweh is in the third person, and so what he's saying there is he is who he is. God is love. So he's not giving two names. God's not crazy. He's still got it up upstairs. He's good to go. I am who I am. Yahweh, he is who he is. This is my name forever. This is how I'm to be remembered in every generation. So we have a progression. We go from title to a name now, but the name's still, we're not two names. I understand that part, but it's still a little confusing. What is God doing here? We're going to now look at Exodus chapter 6. God gives us a clue into how he's working with us as mankind, as humanity. He says this to Moses. I am Yahweh. I appeared to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as El Shaddai, God Almighty. But I did not reveal my name Yahweh to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land they lived in as foreigners. So you recognize they weren't ready. It wasn't the time to know God in this further and progressive way at this moment. Let's fast forward now to Exodus 34. At this point, God, through the leadership of Moses, has redeemed the people out of slavery and abuse and racism in Egypt. They're back at this mountain where he said they'd worship. And Moses is pretty frustrated with the people because they're already looking to other gods, not to El Shaddai, God Almighty, or El Olam, God Everlasting. They're looking to other gods. And so Moses is frustrated and goes, he, he, he kind of says to God what my guess is maybe you've said at some point. He goes, God, can you just like come down here? Can I just see you and can you actually like just walk or, or just speak to me so I can hear and just lead me? Have you ever said that before? Like wouldn't it be easier if God was just here and 
Just seems simple, right? That's what Moses says. God, enough with the crazy names and all these miracles are great, but can you just tell me what to do? Because these people are terrible. Like They don't know what they're doing and I can't lead them. And, and God says, no, you're not ready for that yet. We're not that far in this progression. Now, I'll give you a little glimpse of who I am. I'm not going to walk with you and breathe with you and actually be with you. I'll give you a little bit of a glimpse, but I will do this. I will actually tell you now who I am. You will now understand I am who I am. You will be able to proclaim he is who he is. Because at this point, God is giving the law, the Ten Commandments are the first part of it, to the nation of Israel. And we think of the law as this bad thing, like, oh, it's this rule book. It wasn't. See, these other Canaanite gods, the people that followed them, they didn't know what these gods wanted. And so when it wouldn't rain and there weren't crops and people were dying from starvation or they were attacked by enemies, they would do all kinds of crazy things like literally sacrifice their children in hopes that the gods would be appeased. And then here comes Yahweh God who says, I am God Almighty. Please stop doing all of that crazy stuff because I love people. So here's a good way of life. Practice it. And by the way you practice it and by the way you are presented with who I am, you're overwhelmed by me. You will be a preview, a light to the nations of what life can look like with El Shaddai. I am Yahweh, he is who he is. You will display my name and character. The, the passage we're about to read in Exodus 34, five through nine is the most quoted passage in the Bible by the Bible. From this point forward, the, the rest of the scriptures are actually going to put on display through how a nation called Israel functions, through family dysfunction and divorce and adultery, through individual lives, through great riches and strength and power and feasts and through broken moments, how this God always stays the same, is always faithful, and is always good. Matter of fact, you can't actually turn like more than two or three pages. I could think, I was thinking this morning of just a couple places where it's more than that, but not much without hearing this verse quoted because this is what the whole thing's about, who God is. Let's read it. The Lord came down in a cloud, stood with him, Moses, there, and proclaimed his name. Here's this progression. Yahweh. Then the Lord passed in front of him and proclaimed again. Yahweh, Yahweh. He is who he is. And he is a compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger and rich in faithful love and truth. Maintaining faithful love to a thousand generations. Forgiving wrongdoing, rebellion, and sin. But he will not leave the guilty unpunished, bringing the consequences of the father's wrongdoing on the children and grandchildren to the third and fourth generation. That part probably freaks you out. We'll talk about it in a minute. Uh, the, the book that I, I mentioned earlier, God Has a Name, is based on this entire, this passage. And it's a whole book. From that, this point forward, like, each one of those little statements will be a chapter. And he does an amazing job helping us understand who God is. I highly recommend the book. It'll go into way more detail than I have time to today. I only have a few minutes. Um, and so I'm going to just break down what this means as succinctly and briefly as possible. But, like, this is an important passage. We're just going to glimpse. Let's break down each part. Yahweh, he is who he is. He is compassionate. We, we already read. He heard the cries of the people. He looked out and saw the oppression and the abuse and the need. And so what we need to know about this compassionate God, he is who he is, he is compassionate, is that there is no place you can go, there's nothing you can do, there's no moment in your life when Yahweh God will not see what you're going through, will not hear and will not love. This is a God who is compassionate and he is El Shaddai, God Almighty. El Olam, God over everlasting. He will not change. His compassion will not end. He is gracious, meaning this. We read it earlier. He was going to give a land that was spacious and bountiful, flowing with milk and honey. They were going to have wine and great parties and great feasts and festivals and build buildings and art and architecture and a, and a beautiful, wonderful nation. Like he wants what is best for his people. When he created Adam and Eve and mankind in the garden, it wasn't to see if they were good enough for him. It was that they would enjoy this life with him and with each other. He's a gracious God, the giver of all good gifts. Anything you like in this life, anything that's good and enjoyable, whatever it is, comes from the Father. He's a gracious God. All good things come from him. We read that he is slow to anger, which means he does get angry. And 
and so you might be thinking about this Old Testament God, and maybe certain stories in the Bible come to mind, and you go, it just, he seems mean and angry and judgmental and kind of crazy. He's slow to anger, but think about it this way. God got angry when he saw and heard the oppression and racism and slavery going on in Egypt. He was slow to, to anger. Actually, it took a period of about 400 years. And then finally, God speaks up and said, enough is enough because I love people. And when they're treated in this way, I will not stand by. I will do something. So actually, God's anger, though he's slow to anger, he's patient and forgiving and faithful again and again and again. His anger is actually really good news because he's only angry when he needs to protect people from hatred and violence and, and disgusting atrocities. What we're being revealed, what's being revealed to us, what we're being presented as God presents himself to us is this perfect combination, the perfect tension and balance of character that God is. Next, we, we read that he's faithful, meaning he will never leave you. I said that uh, the rest of the scriptures are going to put this God's character on display. It also puts our character as mankind on display. And one of the terms used to define or describe the people of God is a prostitute or a whore. There's this picture in Hosea of a married couple and the wife leaves again and again and again. And God goes, that's who you are, but I am faithful. It doesn't matter how many times you leave me and forsake me and walk away from me again and again and again he is faithful. What we read in the, the New Testament, he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. This God is El Olam, God everlasting. He will not change. His faithfulness is forever. We read that he's true. Again, his character will not change. This will remain forever. We read that he maintains love. To thousands of generations, he's faithful. There's this, this literary technique, this picture. You see the numbers. Thousands of generations versus to the third and fourth generation. There's this idea of weight scales. And the love and the faithfulness, the forgiveness is to thousands. He will punish, though, to the third and fourth generation. We have this, this picture. Actually, in Exodus, I think, chapter 20. Yeah, some of you have met Ed Bloom. He's the general editor of this translation of the Bible, and he goes to our church. He came up to me after. He's like, hey, actually, in Exodus chapter 20, it talks about this. And he goes, it says that there's three or four generations that hate God and then thousands that don't. And so there's this picture of specifics that God is giving. And in addition, there, there's this picture. There's this thing called systemic or familial or generational sin. You know how we hand things down to our kids? It's actually what terrifies me somewhat most in life. Like, I'm going to mess my kids up royally. And I'm just looking forward to God being merciful to them of the things I will hand down to them that I should not. But if you look around the world, racism is handed down from generation to generation to generation. Sexual abuse is often handed down from generation to generation to generation. All kinds of atrocities and evils are passed down from a father to his son, to his son and to his son. But here's the thing. When you think about a third and fourth generation, that pretty much limits the extent of contact. After the great-grandfather to the great-grandchild, there's not a connection. So what God is saying is out of love and mercy, he is going to put to death the sin and the abuse that's been handed down to actually free these people that are living in a world they actually don't want to but has been handed down to them. There is freedom. Again, he's slow to anger, but he will get angry. And that is good news because there is evil in this world and it needs to be done away with. And God is doing that. He's a just God that hears our cries, that's compassionate, that's faithful, that's loving. He's perfect. He's everything every one of us needs. In verse 8, Moses immediately bowed down when he hears who God is, that he is the I am. I am who I am. Yahweh, he is who he is, and that's who they're to portray him as and put him on display as a preview to the rest of the world. What is his reaction? He bows down to the ground and worships. Then he said, my Lord, if indeed... I have found favor in your sights. My Lord, please go with us. Even though this is a stiff-necked people, forgive our wrongdoing and sin and accept us as your own pose possession. And so in this progression, we started with a title. We got to a name that didn't make much sense. Then he says, I am who I am. He is who he is. Call me Yahweh. That's how I'm to be known forever. And he goes, and here's what that means. I am perfect and good and everything you need. 
Here's how this progression is working out. Call me by name. John Mark Homer in that, that same book uh, says this about the difference in referring to God as Lord or God or by name. And actually this edition or translation of the Bible we use, the Holman Christian Standard Bible, one of the reasons I love it is because it places Yahweh where it actually says Yahweh instead of just Lord. And John Mark Comer says this. I would argue that we need to get back to calling God by his name. I think the gradual shift from calling God Yahweh to using the title of the Lord says something about the human condition. For all our talk about having a personal relationship with Jesus, there's a part of us that's scared of intimacy with God. Talking about this same concept, he says in another part, in my opinion, to not call God by name is a dangerous move that could make us miss out on a key facet of how we relate to God. Why? Because the Lord isn't a name. It's a title, like the doctor or the judge or the president. Calling God the Lord is like me calling Tammy the wife. That would be weird. Why? Because I'm in a close relationship with her. And that's not the language of intimacy. What you call somebody says a lot about your relationship. What do you call God? It says a lot about your relationship. It's interesting. And God moves us as humanity through this progression to go from calling him El Shaddai, God Almighty, that's great in that time, to, hey, here's my name, I am who I am, Aye, Asher, Aye, to Yahweh, he is who he is. And he says, from now on, this is my name, and here's who I am. You have the right, you have the privilege now, because I'm gifting it to you, to know me by name. It's interesting, though. Moses still didn't get to see God, to breathe with God, to walk with God, to live and eat and do life with him. He just had this little glimpse. So now we'll turn to Matthew Chapter 14, fast forward thousands of years, and Jesus is a man living on the earth, performing all kinds of miracles, so much so that crowds follow him anywhere. Matter of fact, that the context of this passage is that he's trying to get away from the crowd, so he goes on a boat to escape, and as he does, they follow him around this, this lake that's eight miles wide at its widest part, so that's pretty far to go around. And the reason he's trying to escape is because John the Baptist has just died. And he wants to just be alone and to mourn and to pray and to be with the Father. But what does Jesus do? He sees the crowds. He's exhausted. He's mourning, emotionally drained because he's human. And he sees them and he hears them and he has compassion. And so he heals them. And people are following him because the paralyzed have walked, the blind can now see, those who, who couldn't speak before now can. Like, beautiful things are happening. Actually, just right before this, with that crowd, there's 15,000 people likely there with women and children. And he feeds all of them to put on display that he as king will provide, that all should have food and not go hungry. And so with five loaves of bread and two fish, he feeds them all. And then he finally says, okay, I do need to go be with the Father and be alone and mourn. And so we pick up in verse 22. After he fed all these people, immediately he made the disciples get into the boat and go ahead of him to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. After dismissing the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone. But the boat was already over a mile from land, battered by the waves because the wind was against them. This is a lake that's big enough to have a storm that is actually very dangerous. Around 3 in the morning, the middle of the night, with the wind howling and, and water spraying because the storm is happening, the disciples, he came walking toward them on the sea. When the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified. It's a ghost, they said, and crowded out in fear. There's so much packed into this that I would love to uh, break down, but we don't have time because we'd be here forever. So we won't. There's one thing I want to point out, though, from this passage. Immediately, Jesus spoke to them. Have courage. It is I. Do not be afraid. There's these three words. It is I. Why does he tell them to have courage? Not because they just saw him feed thousands with five loaves of bread and two fish. And he's been raising people from the dead and healing people. And all of this is going on. He's showing he can take care of the whole world. Not because of that. But he says, it is I. Because of who he is, they should not be afraid. In the Greek, the original language that Matthew was written in, 
The words, it is I, are surrounded on either side in this section of the Bible by 91 words exactly. 91 Greek words before it is I, and 91 Greek words after it is I. And so this is this literary technique that we can't see in our English translation to come to the middle and say, here is the most important thing. Here's the point of this passage. It's the three words, it is I. It's not that Jesus walked on water or just fed thousands and thousands of people. It's not the crazy storm or that Peter, as a man, is about to walk on water. Everything points to these three words. And actually in the Greek, it's two words. The two words are this, I am. So Jesus is walking on the water. They're terrified in the storm. And what does he say? Do not be afraid for I am. Aye, asher aye. Yahweh, he is who he is. Now here's what's interesting. For a Jewish man, for any Jewish person, to worship another man instead of Yahweh God probably could result in death. But look at what happens. Yes, Peter walks on water, which is cool. We might talk about that another time. But we're going to skip that and go to verse 32. When they, Jesus and Peter, got into the boat, the wind ceased. He calms the storm. He's showing who he is. All-powerful. El Shaddai, God Almighty. Then those in the boat worshipped him. Everyone knows Jesus is a man. He's human. But they worship the man, Jesus. Why? Because there's no doubt. And between the 90 words before and after, who he is. The I am. Now walking, breathing, living, eating, and practicing the way to be human the way they were made to be right in front of their eyes. And so you see this pretty, pretty incredible progression. And we're not even to us yet. From a title to a name that doesn't really make sense, to a name that's explained, to Jesus walking as the divine, as Yahweh God, in the form of Jesus, perfectly human. And we're not done yet. We're going to talk about one more piece. We're going to turn to John chapter 16. And I should really give this part way more time, but we're going to have to do it another time. John chapter 16, uh, 12 through 15. We're going to read this. Jesus says to his disciples, I still have many things to tell you, but you can't bear them now. Interesting. There's still a progression of God revealing himself, of God presenting who he is to people. I still have many things to tell you, but you can't bear them now. Actually, he had just told his disciples, his followers, his apprentices, who are being baptized in the name of Father, Son, and Spirit, that it's better for him to leave. And they're like, what are you talking about? You do all these things. We get to, to live, eat, and breathe, and walk next to you. And he goes, actually, it's better for you to leave so that I can send the comforter, the spirit of truth, to be with you. And here's what he says. When the spirit of truth, remember, Yahweh, he is who he is, is truth. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own, but he will speak whatever he hears from the Father. He will also declare to you what is to come. He will glorify me because he will take from what is mine and declare it to you. Everything the Father has in mine. This is why I told you that he takes from what is mine and will declare it to you. Jesus is saying you're about to be overwhelmed, baptized in, covered by Father, Son, and Spirit. And so we go, why would Jesus say it's better for me to leave? Because there's been this progression from title to name that doesn't make sense, to name that's explained, to Jesus walking in human form next to them, to the spirit now indwelling us. Not only did Jesus walk by, but he goes, I'm actually going to be with you. The power of the Holy Spirit unites us to Christ. And that is the power, the same power that rose Jesus from the dead that will empower us to be human the way we were made to be. To be the fathers and mothers, the husbands and wives, the employers and employees, the citizens of Prescott or whatever part of the Quad Cities you're from, the way we were made to be. Not on our own effort, but because now through the power of the Holy Spirit, this progression continues to move and we, being, we are being presented with this God that overwhelms us from a title to him uniting you to Jesus himself. That's a pretty beautiful progression in where we find ourselves today. This is why we take communion every week. 
We have to take it every week. Because when we dip the bread into the cup, symbolizing, representing, reminding us of Jesus' body and blood, you are remembering not just that Jesus died and rose again, but that through the power of the Spirit and dwelt within you, you are united to Christ. You share the same blood. He is with you and for you, and we know who he is. He's compassionate and gracious. He's faithful. He's forgiving again and again and again. He hears your cries when you are oppressed and abused, and he's coming again to reign as king. Now I'll close with one final quote from this book. John Mark Comer says this. Knowing God isn't just knowing a bunch of facts about God. I'm all for theology. Heck, it's kind of what I do for a living. But God is not a doctrine. He isn't a question on a multiple choice exam that you study to get right so you can go to heaven when you die. He's a person who wants to be in a relationship with you. This is the God that we need to have presented to us, and he's doing that. This is the God we need to present to one another. This is why we're in communities and journeying through the broken and beautiful of life together. This is the God that our city, our community, and our world needs to have presented to them. And the way Jesus is going to do that is through his church and us. But not on our own effort, but because he's revealed himself to us through the power of the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Yahweh God, we thank you again for who you are. We thank you that another one of your names is Emmanuel, that you are God with us, that we are united to the Son, that we are united to Jesus, and that you are leading every part of our lives. Lord, I pray for myself, for my family, for Nate, for our staff, for our elders, for each and every single person in this room, God, that you would overwhelm us with your love. For the people in this room that need to just experience your faithfulness in the midst of their sin, that they would know you forgive again and again and again. You will never leave them or forsake them. For the, the people that need healing, God, that you would show your mercy. The people that need compassion, that you would show your compassion. For the people that just need to be reminded that it's going to be okay, that life is actually good, that you are going to return one day and all brokenness will be restored to beautiful. Father, pour out your grace. For those who are abused and oppressed, God, may your anger arise appropriately and save and redeem us. We love you. We look to you in all that we do. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.